drop. Hey everybody, Joe here, Assistant Director of Storyfort, and you're listening to Storyfort Presents, Voices of Treefort Music Fest, a weekly podcast that dives into the stories behind Voices Festival of Discovery. Treefort Music Fest brings in hundreds of artists from all over the globe every March, currently postponed to the end of September due to the COVID pandemic, and we're here to tell you about all things Treefort. Today, we've got something a little different for you. Instead of our normal podcast format, we've got a special recording of our director, Christian Wynn, reading his story, The Lands East of Here, originally published in Glimmer Train. It's a little spooky, a little strange, and the perfect tale to listen to while socially distancing. We know times are tough right now, but we hope this little fiction escape can brighten up your week just a little bit. The Lands East of Here, a short story by Christian Wynn. I was out today worrying about things. The neighborhood was hushed, warm, a light spring breeze swaying and rustling the budding trees. But even within all this bucolic quietude, I couldn't shake my sense of dread. It's been a hollow and unnerving time. For Caroline and I, our neighborhood, this sector of the city, all of us. Things have been disappearing. Dogs and car parts and statues. And it's been reported the rope and clapper of the cathedral bell at St. Michael's. Just gone. Caroline and I, we have lost the fire hydrant in front of our house. Three doorknobs in the den and kitchen several bedroom throw pillows, and a wide section of the cedar backyard fence I built last fall. The Coovers across the street, however, have had it worse. Losing three of their finest koi from the pond, two wheels in the rear bumper of the SUV, and just yesterday, the entire third floor of their restored Victorian. It's been going this way for 26 days now, and the disappearing shows no sign of letting up. The Times was publishing daily comprehensive lists of all reported missing things. Three swing sets and all the math books at Longfellow Elementary went a couple of weeks ago. The city pool lost its slide in lifeguard stands. The mayor reported the official key to the city mounted in his office was not to be found and the Bob's Big Boy on Fairview had Bob's giant fiberglass hamburger go missing the first week of the published reports. It's been quite addictive to read about all the disappearances, and Caroline and I have been waking each morning with a sense of dark anticipation and wonder, what today, who, where. I will retrieve the newspaper, and over coffee, eggs, and orange juice, read each day's list to her. But two days ago, just two days ago, the reports, in fact, the Times itself, stopped arriving. And we've heard rumors that the vowels on all the keyboards in the paper's newsroom disappeared the other night. Caroline says this seems a convenient story, 
and that the reports were actually cut off to quell the rising sense of panic and the swelling exodus from our normally calm and average city. Hundreds have fled, and many, many more are preparing to, so we've heard. However, regardless of why they've stopped, the comprehensive reports have stopped nonetheless, which for me brings a kind of sadness and deeper dread that is also at least somewhat addictive. The not knowing is always worse, or seems to be, and in some small pocket of my flawed being, I crave the worst of things, as we all do. At first, the objects taken seem so random, without pattern or volition, but I've had this rising, tingling feeling that, like God, or the universal life force that brought us into being and allows us to keep breathing, talking, falling in love, and fearing the unknown, like that, there has been, and continues to be, a deep and complex structure to the nature of all that is disappearing. I now feel there is a meaning and organic order to it all, but that we are not to be made privy to it, or I am not. Not yet, or perhaps ever. I get back home from idling about the neighborhood at four o'clock and look around for new missing things but find none, which is not wholly surprising, yet seems it should be. I grab a six-pack out of the fridge and bring it to the porch, snap a can open, and try to make myself feel easy in my own skin, ordinary again. Some of the neighbors are rolling home from work earlier than usual, parking quickly, tersely waving and feigning calm, craning their necks to look for that next missing flower pot or chimney, front door, refrigerator, bay window. The beer, it helps. Sharp and bitter, slightly numbing, and always triggering history. The early days with Caroline, the squat house, college times, backyard barbecues, Caroline and I sitting on a driftwood log on a nameless beach as the sun sets for us and only us, young and pretty and helpless and hopeful. With each drink, the what was, it lifts to both shadow and outshine the what is. The beer, it is perfect, and I think... God damn, if this feeling, this ability to forget and remember it once ever gets taken from us, if this tiny altered state ever disappears, it will be time to leave with the others or to simply die or be absorbed into the complicated fabric of the lands east of here. We have heard, though the reports are sketchy, that many, many of the objects, people, perhaps even the emotions, daydreams, ideas themselves, are being deposited in what people have been calling the lands east of here. Our neighbors and co-workers have been talking of the lands east of here as a sort of new Eden. If fractured, if troubling, and pretty much unsubstantiated, they say it's where the sum is being recollected and tallied, then made new again. But Caroline, she and I, we are dubious. This is our way. When we met 18 years ago, Caroline and I were these teenage street kids squatting in a beat-to-shit house off 15th, not far from the mission and that skate park that got bulldozed and built over with condos last summer. 
We were both runaways, she 15 and me 17, punk kids from straight families with overbearing religions and ideologies and enough white money to bestow them with the idea that they intrinsically and morally deserved everything they had. Three car garages, ski boats to trailer up to the reservoir all summer, robust college funds, country club memberships, the quiet violence of the entitled, Our take was, fuck that. All we need is the money we can panhandle, sell ourselves in small ways for, work temp jobs for if need be. We can bootleg 40s and hang at the library, read books about other people's lives, lives that we wanted, that we wished for, then go figure out how to live those lives like the ones that people did in those books and on those pages. Caroline and me... It was an easy love to fall into. And Caroline, she is beautiful in ways I cannot describe in any manner that would truly convey what I feel for her. She was, and remains to be, reckless and vulnerable, with eggshell skin and sad, wry smile, troubling and heartfelt sense of empathy, a sacred ease in her deep green eyes. I don't know how she would describe me. We don't speak these things directly, overtly, but I know she loves me in her own honest and connected manner. This is all I can ever ask for. It's unlikely in retrospect, or maybe not so much if looked at from the proper angle, that we left the squat, went to community college, university, grad school, got real jobs, ended up married, bought a starter house and then a second house, and now this pleasant bungalow settled into a kind of easy domesticity and seemingly simple joys. We never imagined those years ago that we might have a life that would be recognizable or perhaps even admired by our parents, our brothers and sisters, all those people we have not spoken with in years. We rarely get to how our lives came together anymore the irreverence and poverty, the calculated squalor we once admired so very much, but it lurks. This is to say that some days, all this life we built in this quiet and manicured piece of the world is a comfort. On rarer days, we feel like imposters, like tourists. More so, it seems, these last 26 days. I stare down 10th Street, finish off the first can, I stare down Pueblo Street and snap open a second. And what do you know? Here comes Jules, that friendly, sweet, awkward boy the O'Briens took in as a foster kid a year ago. Jules? Jules and Caroline talk a lot. And she considers him a friend, a kind of confidant and kindred soul. I, however, often find the kid a little much. Hard to endure for more than five or ten minutes. I think the O'Briens feel the same way, or at least Josh O'Brien does. He's never confessed anything violent or overtly demeaning about Jules, but there is a lurking animosity I have felt seeping from him when he and Jules are together. I often wonder what life is like for Jules within the walls of the O'Briens' home. Trouble and unrest, if not true violence or abuse, is what I imagine life is touched with for Jules. I have never told Caroline this, nor she me, but I sense that she has this hunch too, and that it makes her profoundly sad. 
Jules has recently gotten a tad fatter, or more than a tad, and pedaling the BMX with hands in his jean pockets seems a challenge, especially since he's really trying to go, and his bike is a couple of notches on the small side now that he's 12. He pedals to the corner, turns up onto the sidewalk in front of our house. I take a big swallow of beer, say, hey Jules, what do you know? Jules hops off his bike fast, drops it to clatter onto the sidewalk, comes marching up the walk to my side of the porch, his hands still shoved deep into his pockets. Mr. Conklin, he says. Cameron, I say, remember, just call me Cameron. Okay, Jules says. Sorry, Mr. O'Brien, Mr. and Mrs. O'Brien, they're nowhere. I'm sure, Jules, I said, they're probably still at work, or no. No, I say. What then? It's been two days, he says, his cheeks blanching, his voice quavering. I'm positive they've left me here forever. They always hated me. Whoa, now, no, no, no. I say, no, no, I don't even know. They never hated you. They've been talking about going, he says. They've been scared and angry. They told me to go patrol the neighborhood for info on things Tuesday afternoon, so I did. I found out that a bunch of old maple trees were gone, the phone booth down at the market was nowhere, and the shell station lost three nozzles of their gas pumps. And then, when I got back home for dinner, they were gone. No note. No nothing. Oh man, I say, but hey, you're okay? I'm not all of me anymore. Jules bows his head. The wind rises and looses a puff of white blossoms that float across Jules' shoulders. I should never have shown them. Showed them? How so? No need to be shy on this property, I say, and take another swallow. Wink Jules' way, though he doesn't notice. None of us seem to be all there right now, right, Jules? But it'll pass. Things will come back. People say they will. Look, Jules says, I mean, look. And he holds up his hands as if he's being robbed. Freaking look, Cameron. His fingers, they are gone. The skin neatly sealed, capped. Only thumbs remain, reaching from chubby hanks of skin. That, I say, standing, a little beer rising up into my throat because, damn, we've seen nothing like this. Jules, what, when did this happen? Jules nods slowly, keeping his hands such as they are in the air. They went one at a time, the fingers. I didn't want to, but I showed the O'Briens, which I think was a mistake. What are we going to do, Cameron? This is when Caroline rolls up in in the Honda, taps the horn. Well, something, Jules. We'll do something. I wave as Caroline walks up the steps, affecting a smile. Hi, love. I can't open our door now, Jules says, reaching down into his pockets once more. Will you and Mrs. Conklin help? Caroline steps up the walk, cocking her head to say, Hey, is everything cool here? I shake my head to say no, and then actually do say, Well, Jules, let's have a look. I wave him my way and open my eyes wide and worried toward Caroline. She cocks her head. Jules, uh, what's up? 
We're okay here, right? He turns her direction, and they both step up to my side, the porch planks crackling and yawning. He lifts his arms and thumb hands out, reaching to hug Caroline. I wish, he says, and I expect tears, sobbing, but his voice is flat. I really wish we were, we'll be, like, we'll, I wish we were, we'll be okay, right? Caroline kneels to accept his hug and return it, and I feel a low, unsettling pang of jealousy as she looks up over Jules' shoulder with wonder and anger, intimacy and fear, excitement and vengeance all stirred up in those deep green eyes. Jules explains what's been going on around this neighborhood these last days, how he's been roaming these blocks, not going to school, having no one to answer to. He's seen cats with missing ears and eyes, alleyway dumpsters missing paint and front panels. All the young mothers growing paler and nearly faceless as they walk strollers in which soundless children stare out with ignorance and concern. Caroline follows up, laying out what she's been doing and dealing with at work downtown and what we've all been dealing with over here. There was a lady, she says, a couple days ago. She was just trying to pay her bill at the front desk and her credit card. It was totally blank, smooth and new and totally unusable. She pulled it from her wallet and just stared at it, smirking in a happy way, whispering, it's kind of pretty like this, don't you think? And I nodded, and she slowly walked away and back into the day. That was a look on Mr. and Mrs. O'Brien's faces that day. They were just smirking, Jules says, happy and empty as I walked out the door. Jules describes his last moments with his foster parents with an awkward precision. Caroline takes his arm, grabs a beer from the porch, and we head inside where Caroline retrieves Jules a bottle of root beer and a straw. Jules cups the bottle with his palms and bends to take a drink as we all step into the living room. Caroline and I sit beside each other on the plush, overstuffed couch. I expect Jules to sit on the other side of Caroline, or Indian style, on the throw rug at her feet as he usually does. But he stops short, reaches the bottle to arm's length, cocking his head and staring. What is it, Jules, Caroline says. The label, he says, his smooth round face flushing. It was here, Hines, it said a few seconds ago. He rotates the bottle and sure enough, it is simply clear glass with brown liquid hissing within. Well, I say, I like the bottle that way, plain, better. It's my fault, Jules says. No, Caroline says, you're good. None of this has anything to do with you. Please know that, Jules. Will you help me, he asks. And together, Caroline and I, we look at each other and say, yes, of course. Of course we will help you. Over at the O'Brien's house, the front door is not there. Only slatted wooden siding running the distance of the wide front porch. Yesterday, the door went away, but I think, I think the back door, it's still there, Jules says, or the side door, if we need it. You sure the O'Briens aren't here? Caroline knocks lightly on the siding. Yes, Jules says, they hated me. No, I say, they loved you. 
Though what I see is Josh O'Brien's face falling towards indifference, or disappointment even, as Jules walks into the living room nights we are over for drinks or a dinner party. That was past tense, Jules says. They used to, or at least pretended. Not anymore. I hear them talking, after they get into the wine some nights. I hear them laugh about me. Do you think he'd survive in the wild? I'll just make for a good meal. <laughs> meal ticket. Let's start calling a meal ticket. Caroline steps up to knock again, loud and insistent, and it seems perhaps there is a sound in there, a something. That's the cat, I bet, Jules says. They left him, too. I lean close to the window, turning my ear to the glass. That sounded like a voice. Jules shrugs. We all go quiet. And sure enough, what we hear, or think we hear, is a woman murmuring and a man's voice speaking solemn, slow. Is that, Caroline whispers, and the voice is lower and cut out. Was that them, Jules? She knocks harder this time, a panicked rumble in the quiet afternoon. Jules stares out toward where the echo has retreated. Caroline looks at me and whispers, I hear them again. Do you hear them, Jules, she says. Jules gazes up Ninth Street. I told you that's not them, he says. I'll prove it. The back door. Can you help me open the back door? You don't need to prove anything to us, Jules, I say. You're, we, you're our little hero. Caroline shakes her head at me to say, don't condescend to this kind boy. As Jules steps down off the porch, I shrug in quiet apology and watch Caroline follow Jules like a mother. Yeah, he says, leaning his shoulder into Caroline. Cameron, I know Josh, Mr. O'Brien, never... Shh, Caroline says. Please shush that for a minute. Thank you. Across Ninth Street, down the alley, two old tires that were there as we walked by are now gone. Like a broken promise, I whisper, pointing and feeling a kind of peace. Or perhaps his numbness seeped through me, the tires. Come on, Caroline says. We're heading in, Jules. Lead us into the house, please. I used to love being angry, I say. Remember all that anger, Caroline? Yes, she says. Sometimes I miss all that, too. We walk along the far side of the house, unlatch and hinge open the back gate. And as we do, Jules, he stops, gasps. Holy, he says, and we all look up to see that sod strips from the backyard lawn are carved away, the remaining turf shaped into what I take as a long, distorted, smiling face, an old woman. Well, Caroline says, walking to the smooth, dark soil framing the face, this is not surprising, but it's new. New-ish, I say, stepping up beside her along with Jules, but this... I can tell you, I say, I do not particularly like. This wasn't here, Jules says. It was just a lawn. Do you recognize her? Caroline says she looks like Grandma Chicken, doesn't she? Doesn't she, Cameron? Grandma Chicken, Jules chuckles, scuffs the dirt. As a truck clatters down Pueblo, rhythmically honking its horn four times in what sounds to me as a kind of signal, a warning or proclamation. Her name was Josephine. She died last year, I say. She was Grandma Chicken because, well, she owned a lot of chickens. 
I miss her, Caroline says, and the truck blares four more times as it clatters toward the next block down. Remember how her kitchen had always smelled like bacon and maple syrup? So good, like those blue scented candles, too. Hi, Grandma Chicken, Jules waves his arms. Up on the back porch, it seems, we can still hear those murmuring voices somewhere not far. Caroline tries the French doors, which swing open. Voila, I say, not a problem, buddy. I pat Jules on the head. Oh man, Caroline, he says, how'd you do that? Caroline shrugs as we step across the threshold into the dining room. The ornate gold and burgundy area rug and cherry wood dining room table hold before the china cabinet. And for long moments, as we step slowly and cautiously into the O'Brien stayed home, the rooms all around us fall into broad silence. What happened to the voices, Jules whispers. And at just this moment, in the bright white of the kitchen at the far end of the room, the refrigerator begins ticking loudly. We take a moment to stare at the rhythmic ticking of the stainless steel. I clasp my hands, feeling a worried tremble within my chest. I look to Caroline, her short brown hair, green eyes, and just freckled nose. Within me, the trembling speeds. Caroline looks my way after a moment, smiling, shaking her head, asking, What are we doing here, Cameron? I shrug, keep my hands clasped. I think we're looking for Josh and Nicole. Josh and Nicole, you hear? O'Brien people? The ticking speeds, loudens, cuts out. Broad silence returns. I wink at Caroline. I'm lucky to know you. Holy crap, Jules yells, running toward the kitchen. Holy, holy crap. I saw it go. It's gone. Caroline and I look up, watching Jules' wide, soft back amble across the room and stop abruptly at the entry to the kitchen. He looks at us, points to where the polished refrigerator no longer stands. Well, of course it's gone, Caroline says in a low voice, walks to Jules and into the kitchen. She reaches into the empty space, smiles. I remain at the other end of the living room. Outside, the truck horn blares four more times. Upstairs in the master bedroom, the duvet and pillowcases of the California King hold stark and white, the early evening sun angling from the window, casting a soft orange light. Caroline walks to the bed and sits in that light, staring toward the flat screen on the dresser against the far wall. Jules and I open the closet and a few of the dresser drawers, all empty. Gone, Jules says. They took everything and left. We don't know that, Caroline says, patting the bed to say, come over here, Jules. You have me, you have us. Even if your parents and the O'Briens abandoned you. He eases toward the bed and flops on his back beside Caroline, then puts his head in her lap. She runs fingers through his hair and Jules forms this low, contented growl. He shuts his eyes and smiles. I'm scared, he says. I'm really, really scared. Caroline says nothing, just keeps his head on her lap and rubs his scalp. I keep rummaging, looking for some small sign of the O'Brien's life here, or a clue as to whether they left of their own accord or were simply taken. 
In the low dresser beneath the flat screen, in a narrow top drawer, there is the remote and a yellow post-it note with a black arrow pointing. On, please, on, the note says. I lift the remote, which seems lighter than my own hand, lighter than maybe anything I have ever held. I cup it in my palm as the light shifts into a pale sort of green, a washed-out blue. Caroline hums a pop song I recognized from last year, and Jules stares at the ceiling. I press power. There is a quiet crackling, and then the image of a long, straight road into a gray-green treeless expanse shudders to life on the screen. I cock my head, squint, feeling that I know this place, scrub brush and flat dun reaches, clouds hunch pure white on the horizon. I feel I've been there, many times even, and yet I cannot recall when, why precisely, and where this place could possibly be. I try to up the volume, but find there is no volume control on the remote and no channel button. Well, well, I say, looking back up at the screen. There is movement, slight and difficult to discern, a shiver, a sway. Where is this? I'm pretty sure we, I at least, I've been there, maybe? Caroline continues humming, petting Jules gently. Sweetie, I say, turning back to the screen, transfixed with a commingling of hope and wonder, but also feeling the trembling in my chest and hands and the exquisite fear of the unknown. Jules? What do you suppose that's all about, Caroline says. It's awfully pretty, I say. And does it look familiar to you? I feel like it does, she says. I feel like we've, I've, maybe we've been there, but maybe not. Jules sits up and comes to stand beside me, cocking his head, tapping his toe on the plush shag. Is it from that trip we made to Yellowstone, I say, as a haze of rain seems to have come to life in the far distance of the screen? That first summer we were married? Caroline stands, the bed creaking slightly in the hushed room. I've never been to Yellowstone, she says. Jules reaches his fingerless right hand toward the screen. Hey, he whispers, hey. I know that place. We've driven through there. What's all that in the distance? Caroline steps to the screen, squinting, waving her palm. Seems like we don't get to know those kind of things anymore. What's that background slither, I say, squinting? It looks like rain, but not. Sleet, maybe? She steps a notch closer to the screen. Jules, I say, do you remember how to get there? It was before, he says, before I came to the O'Briens, when I was living with my mom and dad, before mom left with Harvey and that other lady. We went camping out there sometimes. We saw a rattlesnake and a scorpion. We walked across a dry lake bed and picked up fish bones and made crooked sculptures out of them. Mom caught a fish in this muddy river, but dad said we couldn't eat it because it was a trash fish and who knows what it ate and all its life and whatnot. And mom said, trash, probably, that's what they eat. You know what that's like, though. And dad shoved her into the muddiest part of the river. But mom just laughed and said, case in point, right, Jules? I didn't say anything, not out loud, at least. I reached down and set my hand on Jules' shoulder. You sure that's the place? 
Jules nods. Can you tell us how to get there? It's out that way, he says, pointing toward the window. To start driving, we'll find it. Caroline taps that flat screen, the long middle fingernail atop that distant pulsing blur. Fascinating, she says. I just wish I could get this guy to focus his camera like a decent human. She taps again, harder. Jules walks to Caroline, hugs her waist. That's all the stuff gone missing, he says, reassembling as it falls. No, she says, no way. Yes, he says, it is. Well, damn, she says. I think I say, looking down at my upturned hand, where the remote no longer remains, just my empty palm, a map of threaded pink wrinkles, runnels of dark pink lines coalescing, in which some find meaning in stories. I think we should go, I say. I wave haphazardly at the screen, because there's a car there, right? And there, correct? Am I seeing this right? I think I just saw half a horse or maybe a moose there and there. Fuck it, Caroline says, and I recognize a long-buried look of mischief, nihilism, the old what-the-fuck-even-matters. I do not see even one little reason why the hell we should not go. She winks at me. Jules punches the air. Jules grabs his backpack, and Caroline helps him stuff in sweats and a ball cap left in his old room, some jerky sticks from the pantry, and a short stack of, of his favorite CDs. Downstairs, I stand in the O'Brien's living room, listening for that truck blaring its horn four more times, the sullen driver delivering the glowering end of things. Jules trundles into the room, and I watch him hitch the backpack up with his thumbs. I'm ready, he says. Downstairs, Caroline emerges from the kitchen, wearing a gingham apron, a single orange oven mitt on her left hand, gripping a full cloth shopping sack in the other. Two bottles of red, she says, one white, and some very serious-looking scotch. She raises the sack, and the full bottles thunk as she walks to Jules, and they slap palms. Outside, we make our way around the corner, heading toward our house, feeling a kind of resolute joy. The streets are impossibly quiet, just a high whine lifting from a long way off, and the slow rustle of trees continuing to murmur. Caroline spins one way, then the other, arms extended, and Jules imitates what she's doing as they make their way down the middle of the street. There are certainly a few more missing things, mailboxes, street lamps, the Coover's side fence, the metal post that held up the corner stop sign, and the T from the stop sign itself, which lays akimbo against the graded drain. But it is difficult to remember what was missing earlier and what has been taken since we followed Jules to the O'Briens. Does this matter? Jules and Caroline run ahead, hop up onto our porch, and I know, or believe in this moment I know, of course, of course it does not matter. We, the three of us right here, we are what matter. A blur of a moment later, Caroline steps down the stairs clutching a small duffel, walks up and kisses me hard. I loop a finger into her waistband and pull her to my chest. She leans away saying, I packed four pairs of boxers for you, two t-shirts and a sweatshirt, that university one. 
perfect, I say. You? She lifts the duffel, heading for the kitchen. About the same. Maybe we'll be gone for a day, a week, forever. But whatever. A couple pairs of underthings and a t-shirt or two and fuck it. We'll probably find some new stuff out there or take it. Let's go pirating like we used to. It's all ours anyhow, I say. And you always did make a beautiful pirate. Caroline shakes her head. Yes, I believe I am the most beautiful pirate who ever plundered, pillaged, looted. Pillage, I say. Pillage and loot. Oh yes, loot. That's the, uh, hey, Caroline cranes her neck. Takes a couple steps toward the kitchen on tiptoe. Hey, where's Jules? Oh man, I say, you don't think? I mean, why not, I suppose, but hey, Jules, my boy, you still with us? He was just here, she says, stepping further into the kitchen and toward the door to our exposed backyard, the hardwood groaning beneath her, the gaping mouth of the alleyway, watching her turn in a slow circle. Hey, Jules, she says, Jules, buddy. I follow Caroline through the backyard door, out across the lawn that needs mowing, and out through the fence's opening. We crunch the alley gravel, quietly, then loudly, asking the cooling dusk if Jules is still indeed with us. The air is chalk and honeysuckle, the sweet rot of weeks-old trash. Shit, Cameron, Caroline says, looking over her shoulder with a knit brow and a mouth downturned and quivering. I understand that most of this, these melancholy feelings of wonderment, loss, I feel them for Caroline and for what this boy means to her, what he means to a place within her I cannot quite reach. Would she take on this look and devotion for me? Shall I be taken? And in this, I also understand what I am sad for. I am sad for myself. I crouch along the sidewalk where it meets the alley, lean forward, stretching my back, wondering if we will still drive off, leaving jobs in the neighborhood and our easy front porch sitting lives if Jules is truly gone. In the distance, the high wine continues to climb our way like a pulsing generator, a dense chorus of chainsaws. The deep dusk hangs plum-hued and patchy deep blue between the cloud work and the quarter moon holding just above. Then a gasp, a shout of joy, consternation, anger, rises too from Caroline, who takes off running down the street. Jules, she said, oh, Jules, what the hell? I stand to follow and see that Caroline has run to the corner of Ninth and Pueblo to stand over Jules lying half on the sidewalk, half up the bank of the Klingensmith's front lawn, his face cupped in his palms. She kneels one knee beside him, leans down, mouthing words I cannot make out as I lope up to the two of them. Jules, Caroline says. Jules, buddy, move your hands, palms, whatever. Move them away. What is up? Come on, speak to me. You need to hit the road. Jules reaches to tug at his wrists. Jules moans, and I nudge him in the side with the toe of my converse. Jules moans once more, and Caroline stabs me with a look of Jesus, Cameron, the kid has suffered enough, is suffering enough. You don't need to kick the little dude. I make a face to say, fine, fine, sorry. I was just trying to get him to cooperate with you. I love you. I want for everything that you want to come to pass. 
and Caroline smirks like, whatever. Jules moans once more, then pulls his palms and thumbs away and sits up. Yeah, it's worried as hell, dude, Caroline says. We thought, well, never mind what we thought. You ready to go? I saw them, Jules says. I went back over to the O'Briens. I wanted that picture of me and them from Easter. This one, Jules cups the little frame from his shorts pocket. In the photograph, he stands between the O'Briens in an off-white ratty rabbit suit. Sure, I say. You got it, so let's go. Was it pretty cool? Come on. No, he says. I saw them on the screen, my real mom and dad, talking with the O'Briens, or at least their lips were moving. I mean, the volume is gone, so I don't know for sure if they were actually talking, but man, there they were on that TV, just standing along the side of the road, hanging out while all of all of everything was braiding together in the static distance. Come on, Jules, Caroline says. Really? Dad, he says. My dad pointed right at me when I grabbed this picture, right when I recognized them and the O'Briens. Dad pointed, then waved me toward them, saying, Come on, come on out here, son. We're waiting, my boy. The O'Briens and Mom, they started walking down the side of the road. Dad just waved for me to follow, for us to. Did he tell you how to get there? Caroline grabs Jules' wrists and helps the little guy to his feet. Yes, he says. Caroline musses his hair, touches his pristine cheek. Hot damn, hot motherfucking damn, let's go, she says. By dawn, we're rolling along near the city limits. We've passed a long row of pine trees without their bottom halves. Billboards with only the letters H-I-U. Several street lamp posts bent in what Jules points out as a form of supplication. Caroline turns to me at some point near the edge of suburbia, smiles and winks and sticks her tongue through a gap in her teeth where her right eye tooth used to be. Jules whistles an old show tune. The whine and hum of the distant engine persists. At the edge of the high desert, where the tracked houses give way to sage and the gray deliverance of sand and scrub, the car begins to heave and slow, and soon enough it is stopped completely as I steer toward the side of the road, near the ditch, near the borrow pit. Well, hell, it's our transmuted fate, Jules says, to be walking from here. Exactly, Caroline says. Jules, how'd you get so wise all of a sudden? Wisdom is what happens, Jules says, when humankind is made sacrosanct and irrelevant to humankind. Sure, I say, opening the door, stepping into the dark, quiet night. I love fortune cookies, too. But soon, Jules says, the sacrosanct is made ready for those who are prepared to be ready. Oh, Jules, Caroline whispers, your mother used to talk like that all the time. You come by it honestly. She was a wise old bitch back in the day. Thanks, Jules says. I always thought so, too. She understood how to grasp the ineffable and sublime in the everyday, as well as plenty of other fundamental birthrights. She knew the meaning of breathing. Caroline sucks a long, deep breath, holds, exhales. I shut the door on them, a quiet click-click, 
and go back to look under the hood, play-acting that I might know any one thing about what has caused this car to stop. Under the hood, though, even I can tell that there is trouble because, well, pretty much the entire engine is missing. A fan is spinning slowly behind the grill and three or four belts are hanging loosely from random bolts and rods, but the mass and meat of the engine has been taken. Caroline gets out of the car, comes to stand beside me. We steer down into the maw of the engine cavity, the fan continuing to slowly wind. Is that the ground I'm looking at? She huffs and reaches into the empty space. That figures, right? Looks like we're walking, sweetie, I say. Is Jules still rambling in there? He's sort of losing his shit, Caroline says. Do I seem okay, I say, hinging the hood down. Caroline touches my face. I keep forgetting your name, she says, and how we met. I take her hand. It was a long time ago. We hated it a lot back then, but we loved everything, too. We lived in a little broken house. Some family had left behind, sweetie. We made out. A lot. On a torn-up green couch. Like every night that summer. You were 15. Gorgeous. I was? My name is Cameron. I remember that now, she says. Caroline comes in to hug me as Jules gets out of the car with a calm, serious look. The morning light is coming white and gentle along the still and open highway. The familiar cloud work roils on the far horizon. Jules looks up and down the highway, figuring our next move, finally pointing toward the cloudy east. I'm not sure about you two, but I'm walking that way. He turns on his heels and takes a step east. Caroline pulls away from me, turning toward Jules. Hey, I don't think, she says. I don't think I'll be going that way. You two can if you want. But I think I've lost my sense of adventure for this one. I'm tired. It just came on to me, I think. I think I'm going to head back home, ride this all out. But, Jules says, but we had to get our things back. And my dad, he'll be pissed. He holds up his left arm and thumb, staring at the ground near Caroline's feet, which seems a shifting, pulsing, water-like mass. Pulsing and pulsing and pulsing. I'm not convinced we, I, can ever get where you want us to go, Caroline says. It might be something that's not, that's, I don't know, not for us, that's beyond us, Jules. You get older, you learn to accept that you don't deserve the world anymore that no one owns that birthright you were speaking of earlier. I'm young, Caroline, Jules says. Plus, my parents and the O'Brien told us to come. A wind builds, whisking the knotted pine trees and sage to life. A hush and whistle. Dust devils whirl along the road ahead of us. I walk to Jules and kneel before him. I'm going with Caroline, little man. I love her too much to know what else to do. You go, though. Do. Find out what the hell is happening. If you get a chance, tell everyone, tell everything, hello. Get your things back. Maybe some of ours, too. Sound like a good deal? Just come back to us. And if, Caroline says, laughing, screwing up her face, mock serious, 
If you get a chance, grab those goddamn doorknobs we lost. Will do, Caroline, Jules says. You know I love you too. I do, she says. I do know that. Maybe send back our engine, I say, if that's a possible thing. It takes us just a few hours to wander back to the house, but the time becomes not time, just a construct of space and event. It all passes in a sleek, dreamlike manner. We are walking home, talking about how much we will miss jewels and how much we could never have imagined our lives now, those years ago when we'd listened to tortured, beautiful music lying half-naked on a green polyester couch, yet how much we're pleased and satisfied that we get to stay here, in our city, our realm, and simply watch this all unfold. End or not end, that is beside the point. It's badass, Caroline says. What we always wanted, no? End times? Motherfucking end times. With fishnet stockings, bick and needle tattoos, dog collars. I love those stockings on you, I say. And off me, Caroline says, and gives me the finger, sticking your tongue into the air, flicking. We seem as ghosts, floating, unknown and unknowable, through empty neighborhoods with missing rooftops, blinded and furless pets, lines of those supplicant lampposts and stoplights, convenience stores wholly empty but for the dead, gray ATMs. Caroline points out a single jet contrail above us at some point, its neat white trace dissipating. We haven't actually seen a plane in weeks, she says. They've been busy, I say, out there with everyone else, with jewels. Hey, Caroline says, I can see our house from here. She points up the block to where we live. I love that punchline, I say. Take your hand and we drift, the smell of carbon and mud lifting from the sidewalk gutters. Then we are at home. Days are scrolling by, blind and untoward. Like all the old songs we still know by heart because... They are what made us living things, what gave us all this new skin, then dropped us off here, not saying goodbye. Four weeks happen, each hour, week, day, a collective womb, and we feel a quiet humming tuck of our insides, understanding that we don't matter, not yet. In these four weeks, Carolyn and I, we get born each day, we witness first-caught breaths. If we are dying at the same time, we feel, well, fuck it. Let's pretend, and then believe in the pretending. Many days, Caroline continues to drive to work, where there is, she tells me, also no one. But she needs the comfort of the routine. Most days, I walk the streets of our neighborhood, our sector of the city, hoping to find jewels, to come, have him come walking up the, the way from around the corner, or simply standing in a vacant alleyway, happy and whole, so I might deliver him to Caroline. Time speeds as it will, then time relents and begins to relent further. And finally, in the fourth week, it bows to us, ticks down notch by notch until it seems, though I cannot quite assemble it all accurately, to pass nearly as it had before. Then comes a warm, honeyed, late summer day. I'm sitting on the front porch, 
waiting for Caroline to get home and share our evening beers, when I noticed that, hey, our fire hydrant is back. But it's on the opposite corner of our property, and is painted blue and yellow, not red and white as it was. I set my beer down. I look for Caroline down 10th, but it's empty. The street's empty. The fire hydrant is quite lovely, though, like the one we lost, but it's so clean and bright it seems newly manufactured. I walk to it, and I'm running the cup of my palm over the central bolt, feeling the shiver of the metal, the powder coat, and the sheer fact that this object has returned. When I hear Jules' voice, Cameron, hey, I'm seriously, hey, I'm hey, I have your engine, I'm sending soon. Jules, I say? Continuing to cup the hydrant, displacement and satisfaction settling in. Hey, Jules, that's great. I'm coming for you. It's all coming. Jules, he's behind. Wait, is he behind that broken down tow truck that ended up across the street yesterday? I squint and try to see him over there, but nope. That hey, I say, I still love you. And he comes back with but I still love you too. And I got my fingers back, by the way. I'll let Caroline know, I say. And yes, sure, yeah, yeah, I love you too, yes. Peace, he says. All eight digits, I ask? But there is no answer. This is when Caroline drives up, the back bumper on the car. It's returned to, looking pretty much the same. But for the bumper sticker telling the world, or at least any future someone following her home in traffic, WWJD? Question mark. There's a thumbs up emoji after the script, and the middle finger emoji too. Caroline has always hated bumper stickers. Caroline steps out of her car and looks lovelier than I have ever seen her look lovely. Her face is that squat house face I kissed, freckled and pale, not a worry line to notice across her brow, her cheeks. I keep finding you here, she says, but I'm okay with it. Oh, I say, hey, I just heard Jules talking to me from that truck over there across the street. I know, she says, I talk with him too. He says he'll be back, like tomorrow or the next day, apparently with a bunch of, you know, the stuff. The fire hydrant is back. I point to the corner. It's kind of fun painted that way. More is coming, she says. Your freckles are back. I've always had freckles, she says. That's right, I say. Straining to remember, but answering in a burst of instinct. I once counted them, your freckles. But Caroline, they haven't been on that face for years. 2,789 and counting, you said one night, she says. She takes the beer from my hand. You just stopped counting, that's all. I, I said, I never meant to stop counting. The sky has been cloudless all day, and the titter of birds and squirrels is at times back in the air. You hear that, Caroline says? Birds. And someone is mowing their lawn. I point to the sky. I wonder who. Caroline and I drink off the one beer and crack another. We hold hands and do not speak for minutes. 
The heat pulsing from her is exquisite, perfect, the opposite of panic as we listen to the crackling reassembly of our backyard fence. My tooth, she says, laughing. My tooth. She smiles broadly with a full set of teeth, the eye tooth grown in halfway. My tooth. A brighter white, I say, than I remember it. That's good, she says, right? Across the street, the Coover's third floor, we see, has returned, but is made of sandstone and marble. Caroline sighs and giggles. Always hated those ostentatious Coovers, she says. Have you noticed, I say, how I have not really lost anything, like, physical, myself? You don't think so? I keep wishing I had, I say. Remember that beard you were trying to grow? She says. I've never, I say, never tried that. It came in red and silver blue. Caroline reaches across and strokes my cheek. I like how it looks today better. Salt and pepper, and so soft. I cock my head, smiling, and knowing before I even lift my palm to my chin that the beard across my jaw will be thick and silky. You hear that, Caroline says, pulling her hand away and pointing into the cloudless horizon. I do. There is a ticking in the distance, a menacing and curious notching, a coil winding tight, tighter. Are you ready, she says? Setting her hand on my thigh, squeezing gently, still staring east and smiling. The coil tucks into itself, the syncopation speeding until quickly, suddenly, all is silent, the air around us a held breath. Caroline squeezes my thigh firmer. I swallow hard, eyeing the pulsing veins atop her hand. Below us, the porch sighs, moans, and slowly the distant, long-held breath is released, gaining meaning and decibel as it comes tumbling. In the long moments before the breath reaches us down 10th Street, four teenage girls, two very short, two very tall, drift into existence. They walk our way, hand in hand, chattering in a language I don't quite understand, though when they say my name and Caroline's, I feel I should say those names back too, so I do. They blow us kisses. They are yellow-haired, happy and vacant, wearing only long white t-shirts with the image of a long white t-shirt stenciled across the front. I remember you girls, I say, from somewhere. It's Jules, they say. It's me. I told you I'd come to see you again, one day soon. You remember, right? Of course we do, Jules. Caroline says we'd never, of course, yeah. It's we didn't recognize you at first. Do you think you're ready, Jules says. The near-distant wine accruing mass, volume. I get worried that you're not. Cacophonous, Caroline says. Cacophonous is a good word in your throat, isn't it, Jules? Jules nods, mouths the word into the air, brightening between us. We're happy to see you, I say. You're looking good. They hold out their hands, turn them in, turn them out, smiling. Look at all those digits, I say. Of course we're ready. Of course we are. But in my chest, in my heart, I cannot say we are. Jules shakes their heads up, then down, then is very still. 
Oh, Jules, Caroline says, can I hug you? Can we just hug for a minute? Jules says nothing, but seems pleased as Caroline stands, walks from the porch to step down and hold her arms wide. As the sky and city raise a higher volume, a voice higher and broader, Jules comes in to shut their eyes and embrace Caroline for a long, long time. The quavering tremolo of the return all around us. I sit drinking our beer, feeling a kind of fractured peace and marveling at this sight with what seems a brand new kind of wonder and displacement as the sky, the sky winks out and everything goes quiet. So very, very quiet. What a tale. I hope you enjoyed Christian's story, The Lands East of Here, originally published in Glimmer Train. We'd like to thank Eavesdrop Studios, which you can find at ease-drop.com, for being so amazing at what they do. Treefort Music Fest, of course, which you can keep up to date with at treefortmusicfest.com. Up is the down is the for the music, and of course, you for listening. I hope you have a good week. And I cannot wait to see you with the fence.